Generation Tech, where two and sometimes three tech nerds from their 20s to their 80s talk about tech. Go. <laughs> Welcome to the After Show's After Show. I'm Todd Brinker. I'm here with my dad, Jack Brinker. We're going to continue the conversations today. So, um, so last time we talked a lot about uh, Mac stuff, but we, um, I didn't hit record, so we missed most of it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I will confirm that we are recording today. I can see the counter going. We are live um, streaming right now and recording. So um, whatever happens, we'll, ha we'll at least have a, a, a recording of it, whether it's good or bad, right? Um, right. Have you done any further reading about um, the new stuff that Apple announced? Um, you know, they, well, they, they had a whole pile of, of updates. And in fact, since then, they've pushed out updates of the current operating systems um, that actually added some functionality and did a lot of things as well. Uh, no, I really haven't uh, d done much. I did fi find an article where they have a developer's kit out now. So they actually have hardware with the uh, iPad uh, uh, chip in a Mac right. Mini. Yeah, now that was one uh, of the things that they announced was, the, and they and they've started and they have shipped those out now to um, people who've requested them. It's five hundred dollars. You have to be a member of the developers program, which is a hundred dollars a year, and then it's five hundred dollars to get this little, um, what looks like a Mac Mini, but it's got a an Apple silicone chip in it, which is the same one that comes out of their iPad, and it's uh, been. They they bumped up the amount of memory in it. I think they said it's it's got like eight gigabytes or sixteen gigabytes of memory six, in it. Something six, sixteen, I heard. Six, sixteen, yeah. Whereas the uh, iPad has six, uh, at least the current version of the iPad uh, has six. Um, iPad Pro that is, and so uh, it's for developers to test and verify their software works. At the end of the development period, they are required to send that device back to Apple. So that $500 is leasing it for a period of time. They don't get to keep it. Um, although historically what Apple did was they would say, okay, now you send it back to us, and this is motivation to get them back, I guess, is, and we will give you $500 credit towards buying one of whatever we've released now that actually has released hardware in it, which significant will be significantly faster and different mo by most people's um, measures. Um, the A14 series chips, which is what is supposed to be uh, coming out next, right? They have A13 in the current iPhones, and all the iPads use A12 chips, so they're even a generation back in this developer's kit. The A14 series chips, um, there's, you know, there's supposed to be a version that runs on an iPhone and an iPad, and then there'll be a version of that chip that runs in Macs. And rumors have it that there'll be 12 cores in that. Eight of them will be performance cores. Two of them will be low-power cores. Um, but I suspect that that will change depending on the device, right? So if you have a small laptop, say like the old 12-inch, say they bring back the 12-inch and they put an A chip in that, that that might have four low-power cores because that device has a smaller battery and needs maybe to run more low-power stuff. And, um, and that the... Um, more horsepower machines, the pro laptops and some of the desktops don't really have as much need for a low power chip. So they might um, say, okay, those will run with two uh, instead of four. So, you know, I think that assuming that Apple's going to have a chip that goes into their computers is probably wrong, that there will probably be a whole variety of chips set up slightly differently depending on the device they're going into. Cause that's the whole point, right? Is they can make a custom chip for each device. Well, if you go back and look at the uh, 
the uh, slide they showed when they first mentioned apple silicon mm -hmm. and spend a little time with it you'll see that uh, it's very likely that the uh, the processor is going to have all kinds of other functionality uh, that uh, you're just beyond the computer integrated with it that's the real benefit of the apple silicon from a hardware mm -hmm. standpoint is they've got Apple Silicon in their existing machines, but it's not not the computer. Yeah, it's not integrated. Right. So uh, they'll just, I don't know how much they'll put it all, but they'll, they'll try to put it all on there. I don't, I don't know what the constraints are and what all those sure. chips really need, but uh, the majority of it anyway uh, will be on the all on one integrated chip. Right. And, and then, of course, there's all kinds of speculation about this, as you were talking there about. But to, to, to me, the, the primary one is for the desktop machines where it's unconstrained by power, uh, is how, how powerful will that processor be? Because they're going to up the clock rate. There's just no doubt about it. In yeah. fact, even for that developer kit, people were thinking that just to make it uh, uh, be a good performer, uh, they probably just crank up the the chip rates, yeah. the clock rate somewhat, yeah. you know. Well, and they've done some specs on it, you know, but the problem is is that most of the apps that do like the, the Geekbench-type things, those run on the Windows operating system, or the Windows, the um, Mac operating system, yeah. which means that they're running an emulation mode on that developer's kit. So, but even then, they've right. said it's, it's relatively impressive, which, which tells you that, A, Rosetta 2 works pretty well, and that B, they're getting a lot of power out of their chips. Um, they're they're going to come out of the gate strong. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So anyway, it's exciting times because this is this is the major development. It, it's akin to announcing, uh, I think, the first iPhone. It's it's one of those milestones in the history of Apple that uh, changes everything. Right. Yeah, it's the first time that they've actually controlled the the silicone in any significant way on their devices you know they've always bought motorola power pc and intel chips to make their their computers work um yeah you know ultimately i don't think it's going to have the impact that the iphone does just because of the numbers they're never going to sell as many uh, mac laptops of any kind or macs of any kind that they do of phones they sell phones but, like they're going out of style. And, uh, you know, I mean, just the numbers, the sheer numbers there just make, make that such a significant thing. But I think you're right. This is a major turning point for the company in that they finally control their own destiny. Yeah. So, well, well, they sort of do with the iPads now, but that's... Uh, well, yeah, they've controlled their own destiny on, on, on other devices, but not on all their devices. Right. You know, and this, this yep. says now... This is sort of, I mean, it's sort of almost the final step in a, in a long march, right? Um, yeah. Well, it, you know, uh, thus far, the development has been primarily driven by the power consumption because they're mobile mm -hmm. devices. Right. Everything, everything that used their silicon was mobile. But uh, the, the reason uh, that they want to uh, uh, do their own silicon is so that they can take that which is of high-performing silicon right now, even right. on the iPad. They, they've said it outperforms most of the um, uh, yeah, portable Everything except the top-end uh, uh, Mac Pro, MacBook Pros, basically, are already slower than, than iPads. Well, you see, they also have the Pro machine out there that, that they want to 
that that's being held down now by the by the uh, Intel silicon. Yeah. And so that's where they really want to let her rip, you know. Yeah. And uh, and they're going to be able to do that. Yeah. That's that's what they're saying. Well, and really. and you you look at what they've been doing too. I mean, a few uh, a year or two back, they they um, started making their own graphics chips. You know, they on their phones they were they were licensing and using somebody else's graphic chip up till about two years ago when they started doing their own graphics chips. And in fact, that company then sued them for using some of their prior proprietary uh, technology. And that case, I think, settled out of court, uh, typically how these corporate things work. Um, but, you know, Apple's doing their own graphics, and they're saying that the graphics in the iPad as it exists today, you know, people are worried, well, you know, are they going to be able to keep up with PCs and have good graphics? As it exists today, the the graphics in, in an iPad uh, already process and 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 move the same amount of information as the best gaming machines dedicated gaming machines so right. um you know and yeah. i know that there are people who are like super super high-end gamers who say we don't use gaming machines you know because they're not fast enough we custom build pcs for that with better graphics and so well apple will get better you know when they put them in a in a box that has more room for more cooling and they can crank up the 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 speed of the chip and stuff um you know, and they'll also have the option of running really, really fast machines with no fans for cooling. So if you want a completely silent machine, um, because they'll be able to make those decisions and do it themselves, they won't have to rely on somebody else and somebody else's yep. heating and cooling requirements. Um, and they bought Intel's uh, modem uh, manufacturing facility and, and engineers. And so they're going to integrate the modems. And you know that we've, we've been talking about 5G coming for quite a while. Um, they wouldn't have done that, and they wouldn't have made that that commitment uh, if they didn't think that they could make and control the modem in the same fashion. That they're going to be able to create a lower lower power modem than what most people are using, and uh, and you know keep the the power constraints and the temperature and heat const, uh, issues under control better because they're doing it themselves, and it integrates with everything else, you know, and it'll ramp up when you need it and ramp down when you don't specifically yep. tied into the operating system because the person who writes the operating system can walk across the hall and talk to the guy who makes the chip and say, this is what I want to do. Is the chip going to support that? If not, can we make a chip that supports that? You know, I mean, it's like there's just so yeah. many advantages by owning the whole stack. Yeah, well, the thing that's still, and for some time, going to hold back the 5G thing is the uh, antennas. They they really need a forest of antennas in order to get the high performance because right. distance to the antenna matters. Well, five G combines a lot of things, and so there's different versions of five G. The the millimeter wave one that they're talking about in a lot of the cities, that that bandwidth of five G. You're right. That's going to require lots of antennas, and it doesn't go through walls very well. So it'll help you right. when you're out and about in a city, but it's not going to help you unless you put up a mini tower in your house, which some people will. There's a push to, to do away with Wi-Fi, and you'll just have 5G in your house. I am very leery of that because that means that I'm now using all my data streaming through uh, my phone company, and I don't have a lot of faith or love for, for any phone company. Well, you, you, recall, you may recall... Uh Probably about a year ago, maybe even longer, there was uh, a lot of talk about uh, location within stores. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know if that'll continue with the with the change, whether we'll still have the environment uh, uh, like stores that we, we used to have after this virus thing gets 
by. But in order to do that, they were talking about a network in a store so that you could locate yourself, uh, you know, mm-hmm. within a foot. Uh, right. Well, and Apple's done some of that by including that ultra-wideband chip in their phones now. Um, yeah. But notably, they've not put that in anything else. So it's not been in the iPad or, or any of the laptops that we know of. Um, doesn't yeah. mean it won't be coming, though. That's right. But but that's something to keep in mind now, uh, because uh, I I don't know if that'll make any sense in anything but a phone. I mean, you're not going to carry your computer around in a store. Uh, may, maybe it has applications in factories and offices where people do have mobile mm-hmm. computers and stuff they walk around with. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Coffee but, shops. Yeah, but, but more important is the phone applications. So locate yourself and uh, be able to find things that, because what they visualize is when you do go to a store, uh, you, you don't necessarily want to do what the retailers want you to do, and that is to shop. You really oftentimes have certain things you want to look for, and you want to know when the heck it is without wandering through a giant department store. You yeah, know? I mean, historically, department stores were set up very much so that the things that people most wanted, the high-traffic items, you had to weave your way to get to them so that you had to look at a bunch of other stuff. It's like the grocery stores. You know, they always line the uh, the checkout right. counter where they know everybody has to pass through with a bunch of garbage that you probably don't need, but they know is a lot of um, uh, spur-of-the-moment decisions. But, but with the advent of online shopping, uh, stores, if they do continue to exist, are going to have to be much more service-oriented. If you want to find something, you, could, you need to be able to find it now and take you right to it, you know? And uh, that kind of a system c- could enable that. Yeah. You know? So that helps make them more competitive with just the uh, off, you know, online shoppers, at least, so that if you come to a store, you don't get frustrated uh, not being able to find something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. The stores need to rethink their service model a little bit if they're if they're going to continue to exist. Um I think that the other thing that they're all going to do, and they, they're sort of starting to do it, you know, in a haphazard fashion, but I think that they'll get much better, much better at it when they actually give it thought and set up purpose-built ways to do that. And that is their their pickup centers. You order it online, yeah. and then you drive over and you pick it up, and that way it's right there. And so the stores that are, you know, warehouse stores are already better situated to do that than um, than. Uh, most like your typical grocery store and stuff because things don't need to be displayed on on pretty shelves and stuff they just need to be available for somebody to grab and stick in a basket or a box or something or a bag and then carry it out when you arrive out front and say i'm here and well and they need to be started, more efficient at that yeah what started me thinking about this whole thing is amazon has been innovating in the store service area but it's not been to help you find stuff in the store it's been to uh, basically uh, reduce the necessary uh, the need for more employees in a store right. to help the customers out. So you got to replace that help for the customer uh-huh. since you're not you may not even have a cashier. You know what do you do? Right. Amazon stores you your basket weighs stuff today and and knows all about the product that goes in the basket. Right. And then when you go to check out, it already knows all that. So you just walk out to your car and put it in your car and return right. the basket. Yeah, so, well, and you've got a uh, scanner built into your phone, right? So it's easy to scan barcodes and stuff as you're putting things in bags. Uh, right. And, and there's even been grocery carts that, instead of just being a metal cart, 
have the the bags in them so that you stretch the bag across the cart and so as you pick it off the shelf you're putting it in the bag why on earth do you put it in to a container to take it somewhere so somebody can take it out look at it and put it back into another container and then return it to the container you got it in so you can push the cart out to your car <laughs> you know there's just a lot of moving stuff back and forth that seems very unnecessary in that process and i think yeah, yeah. that's that's ripe for refining and amazon's you know attacking it we'll see how it works and whether it catches on it you know, when, when I can see it at, at, uh, at Rayleigh's or, or, you know, your Safeway, then you'll know that, uh, OK, it's 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 made it to the mainstream. Um, well, well, that last one about the uh, the uh, basket uh, is a recent announcement by Amazon. They've got it in one store now where all the baskets have a number of sensors. They, they have the weight thing. So mm -hmm. the whole weight of anything in a basket is known uh, but then they also have some means of identifying it by a, a camera or something I, I don't know what it is when mm -hmm. you take it off the shelf so they, they're gathering bits of information so they can positively know what mm -hmm. you've got you know? so you don't even have to use your camera to scan it and nobody's scamming them by not scanning things they put in their basket because right. they're watching you with cameras in the store cameras in your basket and the weight of everything, so they know whether you took something, where you took, where you were in the store, what shelf you picked it off of, what item it was, and and whether or not it's in your basket. Yeah. Right, and and you combine all that, and you can make a real positive ID on what what's in sure. that basket. You know. Well, and so. you know, at at grocery stores right now, those that have self checkout, you find out that they already know how much everything in the store weighs because as you check it out, you set it down on the little uh, side piece. And if you don't set it there or if you uh, bump it or something, it'll come up and say, uh, you know, it'll give you a warning and say, do you is this not being bagged or or, you know, you, there's a mismatch between the weight and what you said you bought. Double check to see what's there. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. and to so to clarify, to clarify what you're talking about is self checkout. Yeah. No, that's what I said was self checkout right at the front end. Oh. Um, but yeah, yeah. And the, so, but what that tells you is, is that they already know the weight of everything in the store. So they have that information. Right. Stores are already doing it, you know, yep. each, each individual item. And so, um, you know, and that's just, like you said, a good, um, follow-up check to say, well, you know, as you add each item to the basket and we've scanned it in, is the weight matching what we thought it should be for the item we thought you put in that basket? If not, then we need to do some checking or do some further investigating or maybe make a beep tone to have you pick it up and hold it in front of a scanner that's attached to the inside of the basket so you just turn it so we can see what it is you know put it in front of a camera and, or something yeah and and also no one's talking about it but i think there's uh i i know there are a number of places that have cameras that get your picture on the way in so they know who pretty much who you are oh yeah and and probably by name yeah no you're right there have yeah, been companies out there selling images with identification to to whoever wants to buy them mm -hmm, for quite a while. Yeah. Google and, and Facebook make a lot of money doing that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the one place that people got real sensitive about that is they didn't want police departments to have it. But I read an article where uh, police departments, a lot of them aren't saying they have it, but they're not getting rid of it either. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to tell you they got it, but they got it. Um, yeah. The biggest concern I think that I would have, and I don't have an issue with the police having it, is I want to make sure that, that the police, and, and this I know is a problem that exists today, is that a police officer can go and do searches and learn things about me, even if I just know them casually. 
So like, yeah. you know, they don't have to get permission to go look and investigate, you know, about me. And a street cop should not be able to, you know, just because I know them through, you know, something we do with our kids through the, you know, PTA or, or you know, Indian guides or whatever, that they should not be able to then go and do a background search on me just because they feel like it. Right. There needs to be controls on how that's used. Yeah. And right All now, right. those controls largely don't exist. And if there's laws stopping them, there's nothing, there's no physical means stopping them because, you know, they could be breaking the law and doing it, but they're certainly, they do it. I know people in well, law enforcement who have done it and told me about it. Uh, and mo- most seem- of mo- <laughs> most of those police systems, however, whenever they access data, there's a record of the fact that who they were and when they accessed and what kind of data they got. Yeah, so that but they, the thing they, is they nobody's them- checking the logs because nobody cares. The person who yeah. would be checking the logs is another police officer who goes, yeah, whatever. Right, but <laughs> but they can't destroy they can't destroy that information either, so that it's it's recorded offsite and somebody else has to, has access to it, so they can be tracked, as well. They can and be, but like I said, I don't think there's any. Um, well, just in the, a lot of cases, guy, there's. Go ahead. Yeah, the idea the idea though is that the policeman knows that he's being tracked as well. And just that alone should inhibit any, uh, not any, but most right. uh, misuses. And, and it would if they felt like that fact that they were being tracked actually ever came back to something. But yeah. but when you know that the person who's tracking it is like the desk sergeant who doesn't like computers, or you know, you know that the person who's tracking it is the IT department who has that as the 47th thing on their to-do list, they're not paying any attention to that. They're not going back what? and saying, we need to tie in each lookup to an actual case. Nobody's doing that. Well, the case, the way that will be used ultimately is, you know, when they have uh, gathering data on a, on a presumed criminal and they make a mistake sometime, you know, like they break into a house, the, the wrong house, and somebody gets killed. Yes. You, you can bet that those all, all those officers, everything they've done, Will be reviewed, sure. All that case will be reviewed. So it's available, and it, it will be yeah. used. Well, and um, here again is part of the problem. The people who do the reviewing don't want to release anything that's going to make the police in general look bad because that then reflects badly on them. So I think that you know we need to have an well, independent organization that is outside of the police officers who does that review. Usually those are uh, lawyer-related uh, things, that investigation. So... Yeah, but the lawyer only gets the information that the investigator gets. The lawyers don't do the investigating themselves because they get paid too much. So they do what they're they, they work with what they're given. I'm yeah. saying there's ways to make it better. You know, like you shouldn't be able to do a search without putting in a case number, a valid case number. So that way, yeah. you can't just go randomly look up friends and neighbors and see if they've ever had you know a drunk driving charge or something like that. You actually have to have a reason for looking somebody up, and it has to be an approved reason. It can't be just. I'm curious about my neighbor, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I just think that the, the, the technology has far surpassed our ability and our, and our desire to manage the technology at this point. And, uh, and well, so we, we well, need some better checks and balances in place. It's, it's not surpassed the ability of, of uh, computer people. It's, uh, it, it's the, uh, the real issue is whether the lawmakers will come and get the help from the proper people to manage the problem. 
You didn't hear you all know. of what I said, though. What I said was the uh, surpass the ability and the desire. Oh, the, the desire, desire to do it socially. Yeah, it's it's not beyond the ability of a computer person. There's very little on a computer that's beyond the ability of a computer person. The problem is that's a very, very small minority of the population. Most of the population isn't a computer person. They're not going right. to understand how to manage and how to deal with, you know, putting procedures in place so that things bad things don't happen. Um, they're not their their desire is not there to pay somebody to do that, because once it works, they're going to go, OK, it works. You're done. I'm not going to pay you anymore. We're not going to pay a computer person to come in and actually make it work better or to stop us from doing things we shouldn't be doing or to, you know, th those are our add-ons. And, you know, when, when you're on a budget and a deadline, you make it work. And then after you make it work, you go back and add that other stuff in. But that costs additional money, and people aren't going to pay for that because people are people. It works now. That's fine. We're good. Thank you. Yeah, I know I'm being very pessimistic about this, but I just believe that's the state we're in right now is that most people who are not computer people uh, it's don't my care. Opinion, it's my general opinion that it doesn't take too long before somebody uh, is burned by these systems that don't protect us. And therefore, they, they are motivated to go make, make something happen. And so it pretty soon gets into the realm of... Uh, lawsuits and things like that particularly if if they're not poor people uh, mm -hmm. uh you I, know. I i think that that people have been getting burned for quite a long time um a long time but i mean as these databases have become more and more connected we hear about all the wonderful things they do by catching people you know because of dna databases and stuff that that previously had not been caught which is great um, and then we hear little bits and pieces about, oh, yes, they broke into the wrong house and killed some people. But, they, you know, we're, there's not enough talk about how that came about, why that was was done. I I I, I don't share your your feeling of of sentiment that that will be that will resolve itself quickly. It will resolve itself eventually, but it will take a long time and there will be a lot of people that get burned and a lot of people until finally society as a whole gets pissed off and says, you know, this is an abuse of power. It needs to stop. Yeah. Well, there there are a lot of people dedicated to that, so I I don't think yeah. you can hide too much of the this this kind of stuff. There 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 are people who have these concerns, and that's their livelihood too. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. But I just, you know, I know it's going on. I know it's happened. I've had people in law enforcement demonstrate and and tell me about it. You know, share with me stuff that yep. they found on an illegal search on somebody who who was a casual acquaintance. And yep. and I go, wow, that's scary. You know, and I mean, I'm not going to yep. go rat out the person who did it, but it was like um, the fact that they could do it and do it without any, you know, constraints. Yeah, was horrifying. Yep. And and I know that exists and it exists in a deeper level than most people are willing to to recognize you know, and when I sit and rail against places like Facebook uh, and companies like Facebook, who I feel act very uh, unethically and immorally in a lot of cases, um, the reason I do is because they are at the core of problems like this, where they've gathered lots and lots of information about people. And in our country, anyway, we don't at this point in time have any rights or control to any information people gather about us. Um, that's a little different in Europe. In Europe, they um, are very specifically have said that anybody gathering information about you, you have the right to review it, and you have the right to request that it be deleted. That they no longer that they, and that they don't continue to collect information about you. 
You have the right mm -hmm. to be forgotten in Europe. Um, you know, and I would say that you know certainly in some instances, uh, in commercial databases, you should absolutely have that right. I think you know you should have just like here we have the right to review our credit and and debate if we see something in there that we think is wrong, but we don't have a right yep. to argue with with Facebook about crap that they're selling to other people about us. We don't even get a chance to see it in some cases. Um, you know, Google is pretty good about it. You can now go onto Google and see everything they collect about you. Um, you know, which is literally every single web page you go to every time you're on the Internet. Um, uh, but, um, you know, Facebook doesn't do that. And Facebook has yep. a reach of billions. So, yep. You know, I, I'm pretty pessimistic about that stuff. I, I, I think that we're in a bad place right now, and it's going to take a president to take some leadership it's going to take that level of leadership to say this has to stop and this is why and this is where we need to put some constraints on it and well, well, uh, and and the two pre people we have who are looking at being president right now are uh, of an age that they don't even understand the problem right yeah and i'm not trying to be an ageist i'm just saying they've been focused on other issues their entire life they're not somebody who has the technical wherewithal to understand this yeah. Right. And somebody who does have the technical wherewithal to understand it probably isn't the person I necessarily want leading the country, to be honest, because well, that's a different different skill set. Now, that means that they could have some really good advisors, but they need to listen to them. And I don't get the feeling either of these guys would. You know, you know um, I'll, I'll relate an issue I that that happened when I was very young in programming and I had access to monumental databases in, in a major corporation. And I thought to myself at the time, you know, th this is crazy. Uh, but it was, it was there. And mm -hmm. hackers uh, are all about this, except usually hackers are paid for illicit purposes, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but they're they're computer people that don't have any morals or will, will even consider taking a job to do that. But all major corporations, especially their personnel departments and finance, uh, have major systems that if, if information were released could create all kinds of havoc. And you, mm -hmm. know, you know they're losing it because everyone says, well, you'll get a notice from like Target or something. We, somebody hacked our account and got your information. You know, yeah, now, your credit card number, you, your social security number, your home address, your mother's right. maiden name, all those minor unimportant things. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's happening and yeah. it'll continue to happen. And if that becomes. Uh, yeah, uh, it's always a know. constant battle. Yep. It's always a constant battle. I, I remember early on in my career working, you know, and I've been in I.T. for a long time and coming across some database files. I was going through and supposed to be cleaning things up and came across database files that were unencrypted and held the salary of everybody in the company. Oh, yeah, I, I did that, too, in the company I was working for. Yeah, and you're thinking, why the heck don't they? First of all, I'm way underpaid. And secondly, <laughs> um, you know, well, the, the, you know why I'm, is that stuff not encrypted? Why, why are we using Who's putting this stuff in spreadsheets and laying it out on a server where anybody can see it? You know? I'll, I'll tell you about my experience. I was using the word processing system because they had uh, the ability to connect. It was connected to a mainframe where mm -hmm. I could use a Fortran compiler, which I needed, and the company didn't want to 
go buy one just for this job, you know? Mm -hmm. So they leased uh, some time on that computer because they were already had their, uh, their uh, personnel system in there. And of course, it being a personnel system, uh, I pushed a few buttons that maybe I shouldn't have, but I was just curious about. And lo and behold, I found that information, all the payroll for the company. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, in fact, it was stored locally. It was on the disk on the machine. Yeah. You know? And so uh, anyway, as a result of that, I was uh, I had a meeting with the president of the company and said, you're not paying me enough. Yeah. And yeah, you're not paying me enough. And by the way, you've got a security problem. Yes. <laughs> and, and I told him that. So he knew where it was coming from. Yeah. You know. So uh, uh, I, I, I didn't tell him that's where I got that information, but it was right in the same conversation that I mentioned the, the problem he has. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I got my pay raise. Just exactly yeah. what I asked for. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and it's one of those things that, that you, um, you know, if, if you work in IT within a company, you don't, people don't think about it, but those people are some of the most highly trusted people in the company because they're the ones who, who set up those systems that, that, that manage those systems to make sure that they are secure and encrypted and safe. So they basically have access to a lot of information that, that, you know, you would think somebody at that level might not have somebody you would think maybe it'd be only in HR or in finance would have access to that. But the right. IT people do, too. Um, yep. And uh, and anybody who has access to those computers does, too. Now, I know that the the uh, HR management systems and payroll systems and stuff have improved significantly over the years. And most of that stuff is, uh, you know, now encrypted by default by package systems anyway. You know, if you you buy a packaged right. accounting system. So right. the designs are much, much better. We're talking about the um, early days. But, you know, if you have a relatively strong thinking IT person, they can still get to that information if they want to. Um, and so oh, that's yeah. a very trusted position. It really is. You need to think real long and hard when you're hiring somebody about their trustworthiness as well as their um, skill set. Right, yeah. You know, and perhaps hire somebody to monitor them for a while when they first get hired, you know, um, <laughs> or or have have make sure their manager knows that that's one of their jobs is to really keep an eye on what they're doing and where they're poking around because, you know, yep. they, they can yep. get into a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, were, were you wanting to talk some more about some of the uh, other issues that the uh, app or uh, capabilities that Apple brought up, particularly in the software. And I would love to go back like to that. that. Yeah, I mean, we kind of started there and we drifted off onto a wholly different area. But, um, but uh, yeah, I would absolutely love to go back and talk about some of the Apple stuff. Um, you have something I, in mind? I, I, I will. I will review a little bit of what we uh, didn't get recorded last week uh, because uh, part of that is uh, is part of the upgrades in the software uh, mm -hmm. changed the user interface to. Uh, put things, uh, organize things in a more, uh, I shall say, complex way. It's losing its simplicity. And my concern for people like my wife, that uh, when the, if you just change the user interface, that's enough to get her flustered. Right. <laughs> no, but, but, you know, when it's kind of a major overhaul, that means, right. oh, I've got to learn a whole bunch of, bunch of stuff, and I don't think I want to do that, you know? Right. So uh, anyway, 
Can you be more specific? That, uh, because I think that, that um, from what I've seen, you're talking about iOS or iPad uh, OS 14, right? Right. Yeah, right. and you're talking about that they've added in the uh, ability to take uh, essentially widgets and now place them on the screen next to icons and things like that. But I don't think that's the default. I think the default is they're right where they've always been, which is that first screen before you get to your icon. You just have the option yeah. of moving them in and integrating them if you want to. And if you don't, it'll yeah, work well, the way it always did. Uh, I think that's that was just a part of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I I wish I could remember the details of it, uh, but I think the business of putting things into folders uh, is is a capability that I use, and they did that in, almost by default in a sense. Uh, but it wasn't folders; it was. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So what they've done is you uh, the. Um, uh, what do they call it? I don't remember what they called it, but basically, uh, every you could decide how many of your screens were displayed, and uh, and the very last screen, no matter what you have displayed. So you, I could hide everything but my first and second screen, but my last screen was ba like basically like a library of everything on my device, and, and grouped by categories that they have determined. That's right. It's right. It's got it in categories. Mm-hmm. But again, yeah. it, 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 nothing changes at all. Fun. They just added a screen on the end. Yeah, well, that's the default. Uh, you know, they're they're trying to use uh, uh, artificial intelligence, I think, in the, mm -hmm. in the software to do some some things that, you know, make sense. Uh, but it it's sort of to me, uh, at least in the presentation added some complexities that I can see see getting people into trouble particularly the ones where uh, like, like we mentioned last week the uh, easy, easiness of tapping a screen I'm talking about iOS devices now uh, accidentally and getting lost you say oops mm -hmm. how did that happen uh, I do it all the time myself but the fact that Apple doesn't have a backup right. button like Android uh, I'm I'm wondering if they're not approaching the level of complexity where they'll need to add something like that. Take me back to where I was. And, yeah. Uh, well, traditionally with the phones that had a button at the bottom, you just tap the button and it was supposed to kind of take you back a step. It stepped you back all the way to, to Springboard so you could see your icons. <laughs> By the way, it is called right. the App Library. I'm looking at it here. And the uh, it has like default suggestions, things they think you might want to do right now, uh, recently added, reference and reading, utilities, social apps, entertainment apps, games, productivity. So it's created categories that it thinks are are uh, relevant to me, and or, or maybe those are just standard, I don't know. Um, but it's got them grouped in groupings that they think work. Yeah, now that's pretty much what I've done. That's how I use folders right now. Yeah, me and, too. Uh, I'm I'm not sure what kind of control I have as to whom in terms of what category it goes into. Do I have to use their default? Uh, I believe grouping? the way the library works is it's totally hands off. You do nothing. You can ignore the fact that it's there if you want, because it's it's you scroll one window past your last window and that's where you get the library. Um, but if you don't ever scroll one window past the last window, then it doesn't matter. And likewise, with the widgets that have always already existed, you know, if you scroll one window past the last window to the left, 
you get your widgets, and those are all still there. They look a little different, but they're all the ex- same things that were there. The only difference is now you can also uh, take them and place them in amongst the icons on your springboard background, which is what they call the icon grid, um, yeah. if you choose to. So, I mean, well, the, the thing is, is I mean, I understand your concern, but basically from what I'm seeing is that if you do nothing, it, it basically looks exactly the same, or maybe it's some slight same. visual cues that change. But other than that, I mean, everything's in the same place. Everything works the same way. You have the option of doing some other things, and and if you optionally want to customize more as a power user, then you can. But if you don't want to, then just leave it all the way it is. Yeah. Uh while you were talking, I was. Uh, it occurred to me there's a one fix that I would like to see made, and that is, whenever I bring a new program down today, I've got about five or six pages of icons in my on my iPhone. I mean, I mm-hmm. don't get rid of things, and I'm right. not a very good housekeeper. So, uh, but guess where they put the new app? Out on the fifth or sixth page. Yeah, the very so last I, page. I, yeah. Now, I have to go find it because I generally, you know, if I just really want to use it, it's a new one. Uh, I want it on the first page. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what I, do, what I generally do is I drop it in the uh, bar and then I go back to the first page and move it out onto the page where I want it. Right. You yeah. Know, it you is kind of a, it is kind of a pain. You can try right. to, you can drag it over the boundaries, but that takes time and sometimes you drop it and it's, it's yeah, kind of I would like to see that addressed as well because when I when I get a uh, download a new app, which I do on and off regularly as I'm looking at new things and seeing how they how they work, you're right. I have six or so pages. I have to scroll over and find the the thing sitting on the last page, even if there's space in in pages in between. It always falls on the last page that's that is open. Yeah, and that seems to me like a really weird default. I also understand they don't want to drop it on the first page. Because then that means they have to push off some icons that you might have wanted. What I would actually like them to see is have them pop up in a little um, like dialog box so it's not on any page. And then let you decide which page you want to drop it on. Or launch it right from there. Just launch it. Because a lot of times when I download something, I don't care where it landed. I just want to launch it real quick and take a look at it. And then I may decide I don't want to ever use it again. But I just want to take a look at it. And... Well, you know, scrolling from the around download, to... from the, I was just going to say from the download page, if you want to launch it, you can launch it right from there. You don't need to even look around for it on the computer. You just say open it. Right. So that that allows the first use of it. <clears throat> That's know? assuming that you um, stay on the download page while it's downloading. I don't always do that. Oh. So while it's downloading, I go do something else. And then when it's done well, downloading, it pops up and says, it's done. And now I got to go find yeah. it. And it's like, well, in that little pop-up that says it's done, I should be able to launch it and say, place it here. You know, I want it to be on page three and launch it. Or I want it to be on first yeah. page and launch it, you know, or whatever. There should yeah. be, I mean, wh- right. why, you know, I just, I feel like there's an opportunity that they haven't taken. Um, yep. But, you know, they can't do everything for everybody all the time. So they'll get to it eventually. You know, you know, the people uh, at Apple actually use these phones, believe it or not. And so um, really, <laughs> so I think they feel some of our frustration sometimes. And I'm sure the guy who wrote the code that does the specific thing that we're complaining about loves the way it works because it works perfect for him. Um, but yeah. Apple is pretty good at 
saying, okay, we're going to add this functionality, but, it, but it's an option. You can turn it on or off. In the meantime, it does exactly what it always did. Works the way it always did, so it doesn't freak people out. And they're pretty conscious of that. Yeah. They're not perfect at it, but they're pretty conscious at it. But I think you pointed out something that I think everybody's had that experience of. I'm doing something, and I bump the edge of the screen, and now I'm suddenly in some other app, or I'm doing something else. And it's like, well, I, how do I go back to that? You know? And it used to be you yeah. could tap, tap the button to kind of get you back to somewhere. But now you have to, like, drag up from the bottom of the screen to see what the previously opened app was and then go back to it. And that's a little bit of a difficult gesture to explain to somebody. It is. Yeah. The The other thing that, that they've done that I find is useful is that the little tips app that comes, I don't know where it comes from, but every once in a while you'll get tips appearing on your screen. And those are generally worth reading. Hmm. I must have that turned off because I don't know that I've ever had tips pop up on my screen. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, it's it's really handy when you get a new version. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, I would because think so. sometimes uh, I read them mostly because uh, I find that there's something that'll that I is really invaluable. I've been wondering. It's like this one we talked about of downloads, uh, and they fixed the problem, but I didn't know about it. You know. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that's what I use tips for. Is I quickly go through it and see what it is that they've that's changed you know and you and usually that's when it pops up is i think they've uh, anticipated that people are not going to quite understand how to use this new, new capabilities and so uh, -huh. uh you ought to think about enabling yeah it. actually i think I back think and you're you're right it, when you when you first when you first launch a new version of the ios because they as default usually turn off new features uh, that will change the user experience. They tell you about them. So they can say, hey, if you want this new thing turned on, turn it on now. Um, otherwise, it's going to work the same way it always did. And and I have seen that. Yeah. You know, so. because if they change the way something works, you know, they want to notify you of it, say right up front, hey, this this works differently now. Or it works the way it used to, but if you want to do this one extra step or if you turn this thing on, it'll now have some added functionality that it didn't have before. Um, you know, and that's one thing that's always been wonderful about Apple products is that they have lots of depth, you know? I yeah. Mean, it's It's been a rule yeah, on the do. Mac for many, many years, um, you know, where where... You know, you could do it this way, but there's also this other way of doing this. And if you do it this way, then you get this extra piece of information that you didn't get doing it that way. And this may be better for you. If not, don't do it. But it, but it's there. You know, they right. have that built in. And I mean, I've been using the Mac since their original Mac OS with the uh, my first Mac had, um, I think, a 6840 chip in it. Um, maybe it was a 6830. Uh, you know, so it was the I, I was there when when they switched from Motorola to to power pc uh and i used I, that was mostly at work but i had a um uh, a couple of the motorola chip uh, computers as well and then when they uh first came out with the mini was when i uh switched over and that was a power pc uh and i really wanted to to see how the mini worked and the new uh os 10 at that point in time and i remember i bought the mini 
and I got an extra monitor and keyboard that I had and set it up in our dining room table. And I just set it up there as a place to kind of play with it and, you know, not in my office, not anywhere else. And within a month, that was the default place where my wife and daughters would go to get on a computer. They didn't go up to our office where my computer was set up and they could use it. And we didn't really have a lot of laptops then. That became the default computer yeah. in the house. And I went, hmm, that tells you something. Yeah. yeah. People like the way that works, <laughs> you know. And then obviously the transition yep. from PowerPC to Intel. Uh, I was, you know, part of the uh, using the Mac environment for that. And and when I originally had those the, that original 6800 series compute based computers, I was more of a PC guy. I had the Mac because I had to support Macs at work. And so I had it. I used it. I um, but mostly it was just to be familiar with it so that I could, you know, have that skill set for work because I worked at a newspaper where we had Macs and PCs. And uh, yeah. and all of the advertising and marketing and, and graphical arts people had Macs. And so I had to support those as well. I needed to be literate in that in that world. Um, but the um, the uh, Mac Mini on on a power PC chip with OS 10 was game changer. Literally, my whole family just started using that computer. And I went, oh, OK. Huh. Light bulb. Well you, well, you sure remember a lot of details of history. I must be getting old, Todd. I, I don't remember all those details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just will sort of, re, it, it's a vague memory. I used to have this kind of computer and that kind of computer, but I've had so many in my life right. that, that even identifying all of them today and put them on a list would be difficult. Right. Well, and, you know, and I know that um, you really were a fan of uh, the Radio Shack color computer. Uh, the TRS-80 Cocoa computer, color computer, and yeah. and and that was your hobby computer. But then you were more of a PC guy, otherwise, and so was I for a long time. I never had a Cocoa computer, but I had the uh, a PC. You know, I had a, a, a knockoff that I built myself. We, you and I, would go to to computer shows and and shop for parts and pieces and and uh, and better video cards and monitors and and you know, and we yep. built built our own, and that's how we did it for a long time. Um, I do remember then at one point I had a Commodore 64 and uh, actually I think I had the Commodore 64 before I got my first, uh, IBM clone, which is what we called them back then. And, uh, did you get, did you get yours before I got mine? I think you had a Commodore 64 before I did. You traded in, what was it? Remember they had a deal where you trade in a computer and you got like a hundred dollars off. And so you found an Atari 400 computer available for 40 bucks. So you oh, bought it and then oh, traded right. it in. You bought it like on Friday and traded it in on like Sunday. So for two days you had a had an Atari 400 computer. <laughs> I, I I forgot about that. That's right. I yeah. I remember that was that was really cool because when I I knew that what it was worth as a trade in and here this thing was priced way below that. So I said, right. what a deal. It was like, hey, I'm, I can play with it for a day or two, and then I can go trade it in and get it, get a better computer. Because the Commodore 64, when it came out, was kind of a game changer. Um, you know, the, the company yeah. made some bad bets and basically went out. You know, eventually went out of business. But um, as far as the quality of the CPU and the graphics and the price point that they hit, uh, and basically the entire computer was in the keyboard. For those who don't remember the Commodore 64, so it was kind of a fat keyboard. Um, that had the computer in it. it, had a couple slots where you could stick in some cartridges for software. Um, it had uh, some I.O. ports so you could attach it to a printer and or some sort of storage device. 
But remember then that the it used the uh, five and a half inch floppy disk. This is before the little, uh, uh, you know, hard plastic floppy disks became really popular, and right, right. and the floppy drive itself cost as much as the computer did, or or almost as much. I mean, it was really expensive for that add-on, yeah. and so we bought this this um, third party manufactured. Uh, interface that actually was inside of a plastic cassette box that you plugged into your computer and then you plugged it into the audio ports on a cassette player and you used a regular cassette player as your backup and restore storage device yeah right. yeah yeah and I, I remember i had that when i was going to college and my girlfriend who later became my wife <laughs> typed in a paper on that thing and i went to save it on the cassette player and because it was using this weird audio interface to write to this cassette player, which was kind of clunky setup, it didn't read properly. And then there was like a power outage and we lost her work. And she had typed in like 10 papers, 10 pages on this paper. And she, she looked oh. at me and I explained what had just <laughs> happened. And she looked at me with death in her eyes and said, I will never trust you with my work again. And, uh, and, and, well, uh, I think the following weekend uh, I went with her to uh, Fedco and she bought a typewriter, <laughs> an electric typewriter, and she typed the whole paper over um, on her mom's typewriter at her mom's office. She had an IBM Selectric there, and then she bought a brother typewriter, which, by the way, also had a really nice interface to the Commodore 64, and you could use that as a printer. So um, we did do that later on, where you could type ah. it into the Commodore 64, hit print, and it all printed out on a real typewriter. Wow. Sl kind of slow, but boy, <laughs> perfect quality. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, the thing I remember most about the Commodore 64 is the Comal language. You bought a cartridge for right. $99, and it had uh, and that a was language. Expensive. <laughs> sort, sort of, sort, yeah, sort of like a, an enhanced Visual Basic, mm -hmm. and except it was a mix of Visual Basic and Pascal, which right. was my real love. But, but the fact that it was uh, not a compiler system, it was an interpreter, gave it some advantage over even Pascal. And so I started using Comal almost exclusively, uh, and uh, that was what I missed most when I got rid of my Commodore, is that I, I gave the cartridge away too, and I wish I had kept at least that, because uh, if I did, I'd, I might even buy a Commodore today just to play around with it. Yeah. Yeah, Comal was kind of cool. It was fun to, to play around with. I didn't have a lot of, I mean, I was I was still in school or just starting my career and didn't wasn't really doing programming per se at that point in time. So it was fun for me to play around with, but it was um, yeah. uh, it was very interesting. I, I, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the fact that it had that interactive, or it was uh, an editor built into it so it could, uh, e you could really easily enter the data into the editor and make changes to your code yeah. and, and then immediately press run and it would go. Yeah, you know? it was, it it was, was a, an early sort of integrated development environment system. Um, yep. So you weren't going to like a separate program to write code and then saving that file and loading it into an interpreter or a compiler or something. It was all sort of in one, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, I... Uh, Anyway, I I, uh, I have fond memories of, of that machine, but also the Coco, because we had a Coco Club 
mm -hmm. uh, built around the, the Radio Shack color computer. Now, the reason I got that early on instead of an Apple uh, was that uh, it was a color computer also. Apple had been out earlier, but mm -hmm. Apple was just overpriced at that point in time. Yeah, they were a couple thousand dollars for a computer. Yeah, I and mean, so uh, yeah. I was very price conscious at that point. And uh, and I got everything, every penny's worth out, out of that machine because mm -hmm. uh, it had uh, several languages that you could run on it. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty capable machine in its day. Yep. Uh, yeah, it was. And, and I think it actually had some superior graphics to the, um, to the Apple product at that point in time. So it was, yeah. um, and it was way more affordable. I mean, it was, you know, like, Three ninety nine or something compared to like two thousand dollars for the Apple. It wasn't even close. Uh, right. You know, Apple has never been a company that focused on price compatibility. They never compete on price, and they they haven't from no. day one. That was never part of Steve Jobs' psyche. It was like we're going to charge for a premium pro uh, package because that's what we're going to build. Um, now it was debatable as to whether that was what was being built in the early days, although. Um, there was some pretty, you know, having learned about it since then and read some history, there was some pretty elegant hardware designs going into that, that, um, that, uh, Steve Wozniak was, he was really quite a wizard of, of hardware design in the early days yeah. of the computer. Yeah, he was. And, uh, so. you know, while given a lot of credit, um, you know, he, he was, um, never given as much credit as Steve Jobs for the building of Apple because Apple was the building of a company. Steve Wozniak was a phenomenal engineer. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, it's interesting here. I'm looking on the Wikipedia page for Comal, and it was available on the BBC Micro, the PET, Commodore PET, the Commodore 64, the Commodore 128, the Amiga, which were all Commodore products, and then a couple yeah. that I wasn't familiar with, Compass Scandis. Um, it also ran on CPM and on the IBM PC. A Tiki 100, I don't remember that one. The uh, well, Z, ZX well, Spectrum. The, the IBM thing ran on an emulator. Oh, uh-huh. It was a 64, 64 emulator that ran, that ran on that. So it, it was okay. I loaded it one time, uh -huh. uh, but then I... I got busy and never really did much with it. Apparently, Windows XP but, also had a version of Comal that ran on it. In fact, I think you can get. Late. I think you can get uh, one that'll run on a Mac today. I wouldn't a be a bit Comal surprised Mac because, like a lot of things, you know, there's people who are aficionados of stuff that are archaic by today's standards, but you know, still have people who like dinking around with them, and they have you know, certain niches where those kinds of things work well, you know, especially if you happen to be in, you know, some, some, uh, area or, or a world of, of, um, you know, where a piece of technology is used that was custom written by somebody to do this one job, you know, uh, monitor this door or make sure that when the temperature on this thing goes this high, that you sound this alarm, a lot of those kinds of things were written in basic or or comal or some simple language by somebody who worked there you know 20 years ago and it continues to work just fine today it sits there and does its job and so uh you know it hasn't been changed 
and if it ever right. conks out, somebody you know, call somebody who knows what the heck this is, so they can make a you know fix it. <laughs> you know, otherwise we got to replace it completely. Right. You know, so you know those yep. things work. Yeah, Comal was speaking was cool. of speaking of programming languages. Uh, I was reading an article just the other day on one that uh, uh, has has had some popularity on the web for a long time, but it's kind of now taking over web programming, which kind of surprised me. Uh, and, you know, I can't think of the name of it, darn it. It's, uh, I remember talking to Alex, uh, Tobin's boy. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, lot of Python programmers out there doing uh, web stuff. Yeah. And that's been, uh, that's not what's, what's coming to mind? No, no, no. But anyway, I, I just saw the article and thought of Alex and, mm -hmm. and our, my conversation with him at that time, and he was really into it. He said that's, that's yeah. the way to go. Well, uh, literally everything, I mean, almost everything is JavaScript right now. Well, there, there's a lot of JavaScript, but this thing had a chart on it, and it mm -hmm. showed that this other language had pretty much overtaken everything, including JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and JavaScript is used a lot on the client side. It's not used necessarily on the server side. But but the interesting thing is what it takes it, to make a language like that successful. The original author of the language stayed with it for about uh, 15 or 20 years in a company that just kept improving the language and, and upgrading it based on all the user requests, you know, which were in the thousands. Mm -hmm. And then they finally, he... But it was too much for him to deal with it alone. So the, that that organization mm -hmm. uh, had a board of five expert programmers that basically kept it going. And then finally he dropped out because he was just getting older and retired. You know, right. after a while you've you've done it enough. But that's what it takes to make a language successful. So it, it's alive; it never dies. Right. And as you, and the real beauty of this language, without. Yeah, having a name, it's it's terrible. I can't tell people about it. But well, I've, I've it got a few options here. <laughs> it basically incorporated every major uh, style of programming, like object-oriented programming, uh, structured programming, and uh, half a dozen others like that since then. Uh, as part of its uh, oh, web-based programming, uh, so it could do, it could serve just many many communities and do it well. Okay, and, so uh, I'm looking at a, a page here that shows me the 10 most visited websites based on unique visitors per month in the world. Google, Facebook, YouTube, Yahoo, Amazon, Wikipedia, Twitter, Bing, eBay, and MSN. Not a big surprise. Front-end client side, they all use JavaScript, every one of them. The back-end server side, yeah. they use C, Go, Java, Python, uh, Perl. Py Py Python's the one I'm talking about. Okay, Python is used on three of the ten. Yeah, okay, but Python's been around a long time. Stuff? That's for the back-end server side. Python is used on okay. three of the ten. Others are done in but, Perl, but, but, PHP. But but you're looking at just one area of application. Python does lots of other things. Oh, I know. I'm I'm just See? saying. I'm saying for web pages. Everybody uses yeah. JavaScript on the uh, JavaScript on the client side, and on the back end server side, they're using Python, Perl, PHP, a lot of C, 
um, Java, yeah. um, Ruby, JavaScript, a little bit yeah. on the backside, not a lot, but a little bit. Some C sharp and some C plus plus. I, I I wish I could point you to this mm -hmm. article because I read it was not a short article. Right. In, well, interestingly, it's an interpreted language, much like uh, Comal. Right. Right. And and uh, the significant benefit is is that it said uh, that the, the it's so easy to just pick it up as a beginner. If you've ever had any programming languages at all, you can program in it very most mm -hmm. likely. And and. Uh, it gave a number of examples, uh, which yeah. I can't recall. There's some issues but, with Python, though, too. I've, I've played with Python a little bit, and Python 2 was super popular. It was released in 2000. In 2008, they came out with Python 3, but it was not completely backward compatible with Python 2. So there's a lot of Python 2 development still going on and Python 3, and they're both still releasing new versions. So there's new versions. There's two branches of the world of Python, the Python 2 people and the Python 3 people. Yeah, it mentioned that in the article. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Python 2 is officially discontinued in 2020, but if you got a lot of code base there, you know, official, schmo you know, it means nothing. <laughs> you know, it still works. Well, well, as, well, as I recall, the article that I read said something about there is a translation uh, app that's available for it to convert your code. Yeah, but, you, don't, two to three. It, it, you know, you don't stick it in and it comes out perfect and working on the other side. Well, uh, I don't know. Guido Van Rossum, by the way, is the guy that, that did it. I love that. Guido. He's the... the Guido, uh, yeah. Yeah, Guido Van Rossum. He's uh, the guy yeah. who, who that, developed Python. Yeah, that's the guy. He's yeah. a Dutch okay. programmer. Right. But anyway, yeah. he... He, he designated himself benevolent dictator for life over Python. Well, that's right. That was <laughs> that, 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 that was a pretty interesting story. Yeah. Because he really did hang hang around a long time and made so many made that language what it was. Yeah, and nothing happened and he, unless he got he he blessed it. It was sort of like, nope, that ain't gonna happen here, or yep, that's gonna happen here, because that way right. it didn't drift off in lots of weird directions. It had one one person, sort of the way um, Linux has developed, right? I mean, uh, right. that has become very popular in lots of different flavors. Um, uh, different releases, but basically the core is remains the same because the guy who who created it sat there and said, "No, this is Linux. This isn't Linux. This is Linux. This isn't Linux." You know? Yeah. But yeah. It, it's it's all these stories about development of of various things are always have interesting histories. You know. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like the computers. You know, it was a wonderful time to grow up uh, and and really be a, a computer hobbyist, uh, because for many years there there were probably five or six real strong candidates for uh, dominance. You know, in the in the industry, and, and until uh, the PC architecture started to take over, because IBM at that point in time was. Uh, uh, they, when they adopted that, that and and of course micro that that also is what brought Microsoft into prominence by having the uh, basic language for it and, and support for it. But uh, to me, it wasn't necessarily the most interesting architecture. 
I, yeah. I remember there were several. RCA had one that was phenomenal, and I I really liked the uh, one out of Texas Instruments also. Uh, but, you know, it, it depends who, who uh, from a business standpoint, supports these things and, and gets mm -hmm. people to buy them, you know. Yeah. It became a sales marketing deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's lots of... of examples of the world where better technology doesn't win out you know um, sometimes it's the first one there sometimes it's the one that just gets pushed harder by the marketing people um, remember the the days of uh, early camcorders with beta cams and VHS and VHS wins even though beta had a better technology um, VHS yeah. came out a little bit quicker and was pushed out into the market faster and marketed better and well and the other thing is is that I was uh, a uh, a guy that used controllers more than computers. I was in the hardware world for mm -hmm. years there at Holloman Air Force Base, mm -hmm. and uh, I was kind of a real fan of of a hardware solution to a lot of issues, because that was my business. Right. Uh, but to, but today, you can go out and buy. If you're in that business, you wouldn't buy a computer. You'd buy a controller. And the real difference is is the. Or you'd use buy or you'd buy a ten dollar Raspberry Pi, and run Python on it. Because it's built into the operating well, system. Well, I, I don't know anything about that, so I can't comment on it. But but a, a true controller business is all about having uh, using a lot of interrupts on the hardware. Uh huh. Because you have you have external events going on, and you want those to trigger an event in order to take action at a particular moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you you know ask somebody about an interrupt on your personal computer, and they don't know what you're talking about. There's no facility for hooking up anything externally and and pulling a line up that that interrupts the code you do it through usb you do it through usb now you put a sensor yeah. on usb <laughs> and it triggers yeah well not I quite mean, the same way no but i mean it, but essentially it's it, it affects the same thing right that's how it's done is it you use you use those interfaces into yeah. a general because it, it's a general purpose computing device so yeah I mean, it's it's not so made, anyway. Made there's that way. there's a lot lot of ways to look at these things, uh, and and uh, there's reasons for why each of these marketplaces develop. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, that's actually honestly, we were talking about that, and we went, you know, we, when we were talking about Python, it reminded me of honestly, that's kind of why I got the first Raspberry Pi that I did because I wanted to play around with Python a little bit, and uh, it's basically built in. There's a Python development environment built right into the Raspbian operating system that you boot up your Raspberry Pi in. And, you know, the basic Raspberry Pi starts at still, I think, at about $35. And you can, if you want to get one with lots of memory on it, you can spend, oh, maybe 70 bucks. Uh, uh, and if you want to get the little Raspberry Pi Zero, which is, uh, it still has a working processor and memory on it, they're $10. It's a $10 yeah. computer. You know, you plug in a monitor and a keyboard. And uh, you have a functioning, working computer um, that you can run apps on and browse the Internet on and do all kinds of weird stuff and write lots of cool little Python programs to, you know, monitor whether your garage door is open or, or uh, you know, um, whether your dog door has been moved in the last 24 hours and things like that. Yeah. Well, also back in those days when they came, came out with programmable ROMs, I thought that was such a neat technology that one of the ways I saw that is evolving 
-hmm. is that if you wanted to uh, change the whole nature of your computer, you could do so just by, uh, with a power off, popping out a, a ROM, and that could be just, you know, any kind of plug-in that you can think of it that yeah. way. Uh, a bit of an oxymoron, though, isn't it, right? It's a programmable read-only memory, which means it's not really yeah. read-only memory. It's it's write occasionally, read mostly. <laughs> well, <laughs> Or in some cases, yeah. write once, read mostly. That's what it was, a write most. Write once, read mostly. That's what yeah. that really the acronym should have been. Yeah. Uh, Later ones you could write and rewrite, but early ones it was write once. So you could yeah. buy the chip, program the chip, plug in the chip, and it did whatever you had it set up to do. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, I... There, there's all kinds of interesting hardware, which is where it all starts, that uh, you could configure and do a lot of neat things with. And I thought that at some point some company would come out with one of these kind of machines that basically whatever you want to do, you know, somebody else come out with a new thing, you just make a copy of that and put it on the ROM and plug it in. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, <laughs> you know, know, I mean, and, a, and lot of, a lot of that exists, though, that, I mean, exists in just different ways, you know. I mean... Your, well, thermos, your thermostat essentially has has, you know, a, a a programmable ROM sitting in it, and every once in a while it flashes the ROM and updates the the operating system on your thermostat. I mean, unless you have an old mechanical one, but the new digital yeah. thermostats all have that. Um, but that's a that's a software update though. That's so, downloading it. Something. Right, but it's downloading it and and flashing it into that ROM. I mean, it's now handled internally in the chip, so that you can update that, and that way it's it sits there for a long period of time, and it doesn't lose lose its memory when the power goes off. It's it's you know it's power stable. Um, well, the the best software version of what I was uh, envisioning in hardware has been what they call virtual machines. Because basically, mm -hmm. you you just download, and you can take something that looks like a Mac, and make it look like a PC, or make it look like a Linux machine. Yeah. And and they did all all three of those, and they all you can buy those systems from a couple of different companies. Uh, mm -hmm. I think there were two major competitors when I was looking at it, but and yeah. I can't remember either one of them. Mm -hmm. But you could buy them for your PC. For so a long if, time. If you want your, for a long time on my Mac, I ran uh, a, a virtual Windows environment on my Mac because in order to run my swim team, I had one piece of software that only was available on Windows. It was written in Visual Basic, and in order for me to enter swim meets, I needed to have that piece of software. And so, <laughs> and so I kept Windows around for that one piece of software that I absolutely had to have. Um, I eventually ended up replacing that with a service so it's now done all, all online yeah and so now i can do it from any browser and i don't need to keep that windows environment around anymore and so i don't don't uh uh continue to to run the virtual machine on my on my macs but um yeah but yeah if, if and, you have that one thing that only exists in the other world and you got to have it that's the right way to do it and anyway i finally concluded after i went fully 100 percent mac that the problem with uh, virtual machines or any of those programmable things is if they change the the uh, hardware so much that that uh, that in order to be a user you had to have 
you know, change your brain out every time you change these things because the complexity just becomes overwhelming unless you use them on a regular basis. And in fact, uh, I experience that even within the uh, uh, Apple world right now. Uh, I'm on a computer right now, but it's a rare thing that I use my computer. 98% of my time, maybe 99, is on a iPad. Right. You know, well, and, and or interchangeably with a phone, but I've used that that almost as the same thing. They're iOS devices. Well, one's iPad so, OS now. <laughs> yeah, but but in terms they of the operating system, the operating system on the Mac is becoming an extremely strange thing to me because I don't use it often enough. Right. You know, and, yeah. and my brain's getting old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a combination of those two things, you know, because uh, switching between like Windows and the Mac, I think for most people, they're they're using a browser, they're using maybe Word and Excel or, you know, Word or Excel, uh, you know, they use three or four apps. And whether yeah. they do it on a Mac or a PC, they really don't care. Most people don't yep. in a lot of reasons, you know, um, the I think that there is a kernel of people in the general population that have been buying Macs because they're real happy with their iPhone and they think, well, why don't I just buy another Apple product? This one works really well. I'm sure that'll work really well, too. But I think for a lot of people sitting down and looking at a Mac versus sitting down and looking at a Windows machine, they don't really see a whole lot of difference. They see a bunch of little icons. They, you know, once they figure out how to launch their application, there are two or three applications that they use, they're good. And from then and on, there's they enough, enough, enough similarity there that that doesn't matter which machine. Yeah. Now, for somebody like you and I who dig into it and do a lot, you know, I mean, I I can tell you that in the last month I have been into my system information files. I have looked at my system error logs. I have run a uh, I haven't run a virtual machine because I don't do that that much. But I've also had um, the um, terminal window up. You know, these are things that. The average person doesn't ever, ever do, much less doing it, you know, multiple times within a month. Um, yeah. You know, so so we have a very different perspective than the average person. And, and for that, yeah, remembering how to do it from here to there. Or if I've got, you know, like a family member who's on a Windows machine and it's not working the way they expect and they want me to troubleshoot. I don't spend enough time on Windows machines on a day to day basis anymore that I have to sit down and spend a little bit of time acclimating myself back to the Windows side of the world and say, you know, okay, how does this do that? How do they do? You know, I know what they do. I know they have to do it. So we just have to kind of figure out, like, um, how I get there from here, you know? <laughs> it's like, I'm in yeah. France. I'm in France, and I know that people in France use bathrooms. Now, how do I ask them where the bathroom is? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, we've been at this about an hour. Um, I think it's probably time we kind of wrap it up today, and uh, maybe we do it again next Monday. Sounds good. I've enjoyed Sound, it. Sounds like a plan. And for I, those of you who've been listening, thanks for joining us. And, Dad, thanks for joining me. It was fun, Todd. See you next Monday. Goodbye, all. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>